Welcome back to the Institute of Higher Earning Podcast, episode number six. Good friend of mine today, Andrew Postel, over on my left, my beautiful and uh, very reverent co-host, Nick Sicilian, over on my right. Uh, Andrew, again, good friend of mine in the DFW area, does a ton of, um, well, what the hell do you do anyway? I do lending and long-term real estate investing, well, fantastic. rentals. So what kind of lending? You do I do the permanent, yep, permanent, conventional, long-term. And DSCR. Okay, so break those down real quick just for the for the audience so we know a little bit of the difference. Conventional, sure. pretty straightforward. Let's hit that one first. I feel like conventional, I like to classify it as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Those are 30-year fixed-rate loans, and they're based on you, your personal income, your personal credit. The benefit is they give us the best rates and the best terms, but they're paperwork heavy. That's mm. one of the drawbacks. Like if I'm a self-employed person and I write all my income off, I'm not getting Fannie and Freddie money. So Nick, that's do we what make any money around here? <laughs> <laughs> not enough for Fannie and Freddie. <laughs> but uh, Fannie and Freddie is backed by the government, right? Like that's the difference is it's saying it's secured by that 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 source. That's right. So. It's if I'm a lender, it's very safe for me to lend that because I just sell it to them and get my money back. So if I have a huge warehouse line of credit as a lender, I can just replenish it each month like securing Fannie, Freddie, FHA, even VA loans too. Okay. And then non-QM. What's the non-QM space? Because that's exciting. Yeah. So the commercial portfolio, bank statement, DSCR loans, whatever they want to call them, those come from each individual source or each individual lender. Like they might make their own rules that can be very flexible, TJ, or even very restrictive. You might call mm -hmm. a bank like, oh man, we don't even lend to real estate. We just, we just lend to gas stations. It's their own money. They can make whatever rules they want. But generally speaking, as an investor, we want loans that are based on the rental income, not mine, the rental income. Usually there's no debt to income in the commercial DSCR non-QM space. And that's what we want as an investor. Okay. Well, we'll break it into that. So one of the big differences is, is with conventional, you can only have how many loans in your personal name? Ten. Ten? Mm -hmm. so, and if I get divorced from my wife, can she have ten now and I can have ten? Oh, if you're still married, you can yeah. have ten and ten. Oh, so we can still have twenty. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fantastic. I need to make more money. So because it goes <laughs> based on individual uh, income. Interesting. Well, nice. So. But, but with non-QM, there's basically no limit. I no can have ten thousand if yeah. I can get that many houses or that many gas stations that's or right. whatever it is. That's right. The, t sometimes, though, the individual underwriters will have uh, restrictions, right? Like, they, you know, all of your properties that that underwriter has to have d meeting DSCR requirements and stuff like that, right? So keep that in mind. Some, some oh, that's right. I forget. I'm flanked by lenders yeah, on the left. Yeah, you got a lender on the left and right. So, all right. I'm retired. I got out of the business. I what, hated having clients. What's great about the commercial portfolio non-QM space is if this lender changes or doesn't like me, I'll just go to these other ones. Whereas Fannie Freddie, if they don't like me, I can't go. I have to choose their rules. So, so the guidelines for Fannie Freddie are very defined, very mm -hmm. restrictive in terms of what you can and can't do, what the lender can and can't offer, because they have to be conforming right, to the, to the national Fannie and Freddie guidelines, basically. That's right. If okay. I can meet those guidelines, I get the benefit of the lower rate and no prepayment penalty, but it's so rigid. What is the difference in rates right now between the two? About half they were a point. Pretty, so they're actually not that big a difference. They're not that big. And when somebody calls me and goes, hey, what, what should I do? Well, are you beginning? Because like Fannie Freddie will only save you 70 bucks a month maybe. But times 10, that's 700 a month. Mm -hmm. That can make a big difference to somebody that's just starting out. If you're already multimillionaire, you've got plenty of properties, what's $70 a month? That's why the non-QM space is fine mm -hmm. for somebody that's made it. 
I don't know. I gave up martinis for Lent, so seventy bucks a month is uh, quite a bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> it's like five or six martinis. Isn't That's it? right. <laughs> you you touched on rate right there, right? So why don't we why don't we break that down, right? What what is the average rate today? And then also break down last week, right? Like what happened and and where you think rates are going to go for for the year? Everybody originally was talking about them dropping, especially because it's uh, an election year, but. I don't see how the hell that can happen. Uh, so, what's your take? Well, if I really knew Nick, yeah, I'd right. be a billionaire on yeah, Wall Street. Right. Yeah, right, right. It's right. Like so, I can I can just tell you what mm -hmm. we have been discussing. So, generally speaking, if you look at what's advertised, those are the rates for my primary home on average. You could follow Mortgage Bankers Association (MBA). They they publicize rates, and they will do Fannie, Freddie, VA, FHA. You can kind of see each loan type. It's about 7% on average for the average credit score, average down payment for a primary home. So on an investment property, it's about seven and three quarters, about 7.75, which means the non-cum space is about eight and a quarter. And again, I'm estimating, don't hold me yeah. to the penny, but right around here. So now, four weeks ago, right at the beginning of the year, rates were coming down. We were, oh, thankfully, they're in the low sixes for primary homes, which really helped. And then the job reports came out, which was like, the economy's not slowing down. And then Jerome Powell was on 60 Minutes on Sunday night, and ever since then, the rates have increased every day. That last Friday, before Jerome spoke on 60 Minutes, the single largest increase in mortgage rates in the past year. That one Friday when that jobs reports came out. Why, why is more. jobs report such a big well, before you thing know. on that, right? Like, even taking a step back from that, what are the driving factors of rates? So mm. does the same stuff drive rates on the conventional side, the homeowner side, as does on the non-QM side? So if you want to get really technical, the two-year treasury is on non-QM, and the 10-year treasury is for Fannie, Freddie, FHA. Okay. So if you want to, I mean, I pull up the 10-year treasury every day. Mm -hmm. I'd almost encourage everybody to not follow it because it gets really frustrating. But... The Federal Reserve hasn't increased or decreased rates all year, but mortgage rates have gone up and down. Why? Right. Because it follows market conditions and more specifically the 10-year Treasury bond. So if the So what moves the 10-year Treasury bond? Yeah. Let's talk about that one. Yeah, so let's assume the two-year kind of moves similarly to the 10-year just for now. So what moves what moves the bonds? If I'm looking for a safe place to put my money because there's volatility or uncertainty over here, that's what moves the 10-year Treasury bond up. Okay. And then if everything is working out, I don't have to put it in a safe place. I can be a little bit more risky. That's what moves the 10-year Treasury down. And so these if the 10-year Treasury goes up, what happens to the interest rate as a consumer that's buying a house? What does that do to them? It goes up too. Okay. As the 10-year Treasury goes up, so does your 30-year Fannie Freddie FHA loan. Okay. What do you got? You follow all that? Yeah, no, yeah. Right, Brad, have just a fun, fun thing to break Tommy, down Tommy, and digest on that. Get us some crayons. <laughs> we, need some, we need some friends to figure this out. Hey, I'm a Marine. I might have to actually eat those while I'm here at the table. That, I, I want to, we'll circle back to that in a minute. But, um, why, all right, so, so touch, I want to touch base on the jobs report, right? So, so everybody was saying Jerome Powell has been using the jobs report as his indicator on why he's been raising, right? It's his justification, part of it, right? He's saying, hey, I'm, he originally two years ago when he started this, he came out and he said, hey, I'm going to raise rates until I feel pain, until I see it, right? Until mm -hmm. I see those numbers. And we thought in December, right, that we were, they were saying, hey, we're going to pause right now. I think where we're at, where we're at is good enough. We're seeing those pain points. 
But two months later, now we're in February, and they're saying, hey, we're not seeing those pain points. But so, so let's, well, let's backtrack to that. Why the, right? why like, the jobs report is important. The two, at least historically speaking, the two mandates of the Fed, right, are relatively stable employment and low inflation. Mm -hmm. right? That's the two mandates that the Fed is supposed to have in terms of like what dictates or what influences their policy. So unfortunately, they're sort of uh, counter each other because higher, higher unemployment, or rather lower unemployment, right? so lower unemployment rate, more people working, tends to be inflationary because that means there's more money in the marketplace driving up prices because there's more people that have money to go spend on shit. And then inflation tends to be anti-generally uh, employment because the higher prices are, the you know more stuff costs. Uh, maybe maybe you hire more people in order to fill the demand, but there's not going to be a demand there because the people can't afford the shit. Mm -hmm. So they kind of work like almost opposite each other, and that's the balancing act that the Fed's been doing. So post COVID, right? Post COVID, with inflation being on the record, whatever it was, and probably closer to twice that when you take into account like food and gas then that's why the Fed's been just dialing up the thing, raising rates. And everyone's like, oh my God, it's going to crash the economy, it's going to do all this stuff. I don't know if we've exactly seen that happen, but what effects have we seen from that, in your yeah. opinion? So the economy has slowed. Mm -hmm. You have seen businesses uh, fail. Some banks have even failed, right? Some banks have failed because of this. Also, commercial real estate is suffering very greatly because of what's happening with their adjustable rates that they have. Oh, right? that's a favorite, okay, that's a favorite topic. Yeah, so so since you're a lender for a long time, do you do any commercial loans for like apartment complexes, that kind of stuff? I do not. I'm not strictly a, a residential Smart. one to four unit. Yeah. But you're obviously experienced in the space and know how it yeah. works. Yeah. What's, the, I, what's the biggest difference between the residential space, like homeowner loans and yeah. commercial loans? Because yeah. this is a big thing that happens in the marketplace sure. that we've been bumping into right now. So as our economy changes, society changes, one of the biggest societal changes that's happened in the, in the past three years is people don't want to go into the office. And companies realize it too. Well, I don't want to pay for the office. I don't want to buy your toilet Tommy, paper. Tell the team they're all working from home or saving office money. <laughs> Send them home. So there's this huge element of like, hey, if I'm a business struggling, where am I going to save money at? Mm -hmm. Retail office space or commercial office space. And those are the ones that are really hit, getting hit because not only do they have loans that adjust every few years, but then the value of those commercial properties are dictated by how much rent they receive. Mm -hmm. So if the rent's down, so is their value. They're, gonna hit, they're getting hit double on commercial for value and tenants. Yeah, I think we're seeing, so you've been in the market since, you said 20 years? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, even longer than me, and I've been in it since 2006. So you've seen the market cycle happen a couple times, mm -hmm. and you've seen the differences in even lending guidelines now change quite a bit in the residential space. Honestly, I don't think they've changed that much in the commercial space except for on a per loan basis, but in terms of like the strategy behind the loans. The biggest difference I've seen in this market cycle versus 2006 to 2010 was um, just how much more stable the residential lending environment is versus the commercial lending environment. Yep. Whereas before, back in the day, 2006 to 2010, residential loans were very much like commercial loans. There were balloons, there were uh, adjustable rates all over the place. Reverse amortizing, Reverse amortization, <laughs> yeah. Um, there was the ninja loans, the liar mm -hmm. loans. And so I, th I think what's happened in a lot of cases is a lot of that kind of stupid in the lending industry has now been more amplified in the commercial space. Because oh. we're seeing, you know, we've seen a couple of big uh, apartment funds, a couple of big guys, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars assets under management, go out on a 30, 40, $80 million property because basically they just didn't manage their interest yeah. rate risk as well as they should have. So I think we're seeing a lot more of that. And I think we're, 
I, I personally think we're more insulated on the residential space mm -hmm. from those fluctuations, um, partially because of Dodd-Frank, partially because of just now we've had 15 years to kind of figure it out and work through it. Uh, what do you think about that? So TJ, one of the biggest things that's different about this time around, like I was investing during 9-11. All right, when 9-11 happened, commercial space went down and so did residential. <clears throat> I invested during the housing crisis. Residential went way down. The thing that's happening now, there's this huge pool of people over here in two and 3% mortgages mm -hmm. that will never sell. So even though the housing market has slowed, there's no inventory and people's values are still there. So even though underwriting is more stable, it mm -hmm. is, the values are consistent because there's not this huge millions of people selling their homes at a deep discount that are affecting values. And that's why real estate, residential real estate, is still in a very good position. That's what I've been seeing. That's what we all been seeing. So what are the, what are the driving factors now that are gonna keep residential real estate inventory low um, and be supportive, I think, of prices? So the, the low inventory is because, I mean, there's literally millions of homes mm -hmm. that just won't hit the market. So if I'm a builder, I can only build so many homes a year specifically when my rates are higher on my construction loans, right? So it's the existing home sales that are really driving the market. Okay. Builders can still uh, buy down mortgage rates really well. So you might even see builders like two and 3% lower than what an average person can do because they make 20 or 30,000 extra profit on their, on their new build. Mm -hmm. And they're still stable. They're actually doing pretty well right now. Okay. They like to make more, but the no ones- will. Yeah, I know, right? But the ones that are really holding the market up are the ones that are pre-existing homes that I can't buy because they're not for sale. So I have to pay a premium because I've only got one or two or three choices. If you, in, our mar in our market, if you go out and try to buy a 250 or $260,000 home, there's hardly anything out there. Mm. Your pickings are so slim. So I guess I have to take this one price because that's my only choice. If I can even afford a home right now, the choices between me are, are not there. So I'm still willing to pay a little bit more. I get some seller concessions maybe, but the values are holding up because of the pre-existing homes on the market. And so, there's still a gigantic <coughs> lag from those builders, right? Never building for years. And then the the lag, even if you start a, start a new construction, you still have three, six, 12 months until you even get that product ready for retail, right? To actually sell. Um, so that is still there in that sense, right? That if you're only looking at 90 days, days on market currently, right? That we're, yeah, we're seeing. pretty close, yep. Yeah, so we're only seeing three months. New construction isn't even in the discussion, right? Like, cause again, you're, there is that like, uh, yeah. I wanna say one more thing about this too, because consumer confidence is a really big thing. This is macroeconomic stuff, right? But we've even noticed it here too. So rewind a year and a half ago when rates doubled in 60 days, nobody went out to buy. Mm -hmm. But now people are like, oh, the rates are still at six and a half or seven. Okay, I'm gonna think about it more. So now there's at least people on the fence who are willing to discuss it. And once they learn like, hey, the seller is willing to buy down your rate. Oh, really? Yeah, the seller's willing to pay you $10,000 to help you buy. Like once they realize that the sellers are mm -hmm. desperate too, they need to sell, they're moving across country or they wanna get into new school zone. There's people out there who do need to sell their homes for whatever reason, and they're willing to give incentives for that. So even though there's um, more people who are looking, once they learn about what incentives are out there, they feel a little bit better, a little bit more confident about buying a home now. So I, I think fundamentally what we're seeing, at least on our side, is exactly what you're talking about, is I think, I think lower rates are gonna keep inventory basically relatively low-ish 
but we're going to see people that need to move, need to sell, need to buy, still be able to buy. And then I, I will say that market hates uncertainty. So when rates are going up, rates haven't been raised, well, this much um, and this quickly pretty much ever. But they really have, we haven't really seen like a substantial rate rise since about 2006. Mm -hmm. So the entire marketplace was like, well, what's going to happen? Is, is prices going to, is, are prices going to go down? Are prices going to plummet? What's going to happen to the retail market? Is residential real estate dead? You know, all this fear-mongery crap that dust that have been, you know, around for a minute or two realized, well, we're not exactly sure what's going to happen, but let's take a step back and let's take a look around. And when rates were going up, that's kind of what happened to the marketplace. There was a lot of stagnation. Not a lot of inventory. Prices basically stopped going up, but they didn't really go down except for in some sub-markets. And then people didn't really move a whole lot. And now, as much as we hate the term new normal, I think what we're seeing is more of a new normal where people understand, okay, if I want to move, um, if I have to move, I'm going to probably have to give up my 3 4% rate that I got. I'm going to have to bite the bullet and get a 6.5% rate uh, if I want to move. Then now I have a choice to make, and I think all of us do too that are homeowners. Well, do I want to sell my primary residence that's really, really paid down with a low rate, and it would cash flow like a mofo if I sold, if I kept it, or yeah, or do I want to keep it and rent it and move, or do I just want to stay put where I am? So basically, all three of those options. Uh, the only option that really increases inventory is putting my primary residence that would cash flow well with a low rate on the market. Well, I don't feel like doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, if I want to buy another house, right, then that's going to take my house is not going to hit the market and the other house is going to be off the market because I'm going to buy that one. And again, if it's for rent or whatever, it's the same, same deal. So I think, I think we're likely to see low inventory moving forward too, but more, like you said, more seller concessions, more kind of realityville outlook on what's going on with the market. Okay, what, what can I do? What do I want to do? And where, you know, where do we kind of meet in the middle? 12 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there was a true buying season. Like this is retail real estate now, right? March through September, that's when everybody bought and sold. You did not list your property for sale in the wintertime. It was a death sentence, a suicide, you don't do it. Especially up north where it snows every time. You know, in the winter, you didn't list your home. Two years ago, we saw that occur. Like, oh, October. Oh, just, everyone, everyone just fell off everyone the Everyone was tripping out. That's right. Everyone was tripping that's out right. at that time. And then when March hit, things started to pick up. Same thing's happening now. So this might, the way it used to be, might be how it is going forward. Maybe we just have a six-month buying season, which is a true buying season, and six months off, maybe five months off. I've rotated all my leases. They're not renewing from November to February. If you want to renew, I want to do a 13- or 14-month lease because I don't even want them renewing during that mm -hmm. time. I've got one unit in my quad, one unit, that I just haven't been able to rent since November. I, that just seems to be what's the, the normal place now. There's an off-season now like it used to be. Have you... So I know there were there were started discussing it and stuff, but have you started or even seen any new products to account for the higher rates, right? Like oh. like a 40-year product or... Yeah. So, Fannie and Freddie's, this is the one of the biggest differences between presidential administrations. When the last president was in office, he charged Fannie and Freddie, get out of conservatorship, get out of it. There was a time there, I don't know if you remember, where Fannie and Freddie were only thinking about letting you do four investment properties. Mm -hmm. It was a short time, like, hey, you, one lender can't have more than four. Now that there's a new administration, they've, char they've changed it. We're charging you get first-time home buyers into their properties. So from a lending bank, some banks have done these things, but Fannie and Freddie have both come out with different first-time home buyer programs that help people buy homes faster and easier. One of the biggest changes on the investment side, multi-unit properties. Before, 
15, 20% down if it was my primary home. Now you can do 5% down Fannie Mae on a quad. That's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. Yeah. Good luck finding a fourplex and do right. the cash right. flow. That's right. But. Well, and, and the cash flow is out. I mean, you're occupying yeah. one of the units. So in that house hacking scenario, it doesn't cash flow, but it helps me afford a higher value to own. Or maybe later I can make it a really great investment. So they've also come out with some like $2,000 grant, $5,000 grant. So they've, they've tried. It's just still, if you're making 55, 60, 70, 80,000, it's really hard for you to afford anything when the rate's 7%. Mm -hmm. um, but they're trying. Yeah. Where do you see affordability playing into this? Because I'm from the left coast, yeah. and we always saw affordability out there as a leading indicator of a pricing correction in the real estate market, regardless of the perceived health of the market. Um, is affordability now out the window because of the lower interest rates and all these people just locked into such a low rate that now affordability isn't going to matter so much at the new retail pricing? Or eventually, are we either going to have to have higher wage growth to compensate for the price, or are we going to have to have lower prices? I mean, that's pretty much the three options. The, the higher wage growth, TJ, is, it's too far. Mm -hmm. Like, the rates are too high. If rates can get under 6.5, that opens up home ownership for a million people. What does that do to prices? Yeah, well, that's that, the problem. Though. That'll make prices go up, but I can still afford more. So, like, I had a teacher, teacher for twelve years. She sold her home five years ago. Wanted to buy a home now. Now she's a teacher. She makes like sixty grand a year. It's a public school teacher. She can't afford anything. It's like one hundred twenty thousand. She has a car payment, and that's it. Yep. She can only afford a hundred. That's, that's barely a mobile home for a public teacher. Mm -hmm. So if we can just get that price point from 120 to 180, it opens up the door for her so much more. And her, like she would have to have double the, in, the, the income to support that on paper when rates are seven. So okay. just get it, to, get it to me at six, just under six, that helps so many more people out with affordability. So you think, so you think if rates come down and they're anticipating you know, maybe a Fed drop in the rates towards the end of the year or something like that, but you're anticipating if rates come down, yeah, we'll have a bump in prices, but we won't have a corresponding bump in prices sufficient to make up for the affordability gap mm -hmm. that the higher rates are now causing. The other thing that it helps too, all those people in the 3% rate, mm -hmm. All right, it's only five now. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. You know, maybe so inventory will help out too. Yeah, okay. those people will start making a move because mm -hmm. they, that that delta's. Yeah, that's the part that no one ever talks about. I, I don't think that I don't think that we'd have a flood of inventory sufficient to really move the market down that much. Right. But I think we'd likely have a more of a liquidity event where we have more inventory just available and rotating, mm -hmm. which is a sign of a healthy market. That's right. A and what we're doing, I mean, I suppose in our business for like real estate flipping, what we've changed quite a bit is if there's more inventory or there's more product on the market or there's, or there's less demand, which we've kind of had a lot of those things happen, is we're being a lot more picky with what we're going to renovate, what we're going to keep, what we're going to flip, what um, you know, what neighborhoods we like and what neighborhoods we don't like for the long, complex kind of rehab processes. Now, to wholesale something to make a quick buck or whatever, that's, that's different. Then we just buy cheap and sell it you know, a mm -hmm. little less cheap. But stuff that we're actually like taking down and working on, because we got bid on one house last year, that uh, you know during COVID, no problem because everything's going up like this. It doesn't matter. But we got a bit on one house because the floor plan was kind of funky. There's a step. It was a standard three-two, right? Um, but there's a step down into the living room and into the dining room. There was a, a weird diagonal step up in the master. Excuse me. I know how sensitive you are in the primary primary, primary bedroom. <laughs> there's a weird diagonal and like a weird step up. Like that's kind of weird. And there was uh, the master bathroom, primary bathroom. Um, didn't have like a separate doorway. 
Okay, and we didn't fix those things because it's not really practical on this price point to fix those things. And I think we lost 20 grand on it. Uh, whereas, and we also overimproved it. So during COVID, and that's about the only one that we did, by the way. So before everyone jumps down there, like uh, some of the gurus out there losing millions of bucks on, uh, you know, doing too many flips. Too some many of haircuts. them are. We saw it. We, yeah. we saw it coming, and that was yeah. the one that kind of like, yeah, kind of got us a little bit. Um, but what does that do to inventory, in my opinion? Well, now that house sits on the market, whereas the next door neighboring house that doesn't have all those functional issues, it still sells relatively quickly because they're not apples to apples mm -hmm. anymore. Because now this one's a little goofy. Yep. This one's not goofy. Goofy doesn't sell, not goofy does sell because there's more inventory, because there's more options. We are seeing, TJ, a direct correlation with that. So if your home is on the market and it's good home and it's price fair, you might even get multiple offers that first weekend. Mm -hmm. But if it's a little bit different or a little bit off price, you might, you might be sitting there for 60 or 90 days. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. But still, 90 days. It's fine. You know, like, and that's, that's what I love about this. Everybody like, is screaming and crying over less than three months of inventory, right? So I think there, had, there, the, there was such that room, there's such that gap to, to, of inventory that we could have expanded into that it's not, it's not fucking all brimstone and fire and all that shit, right? Like, no, it's not going to be... It's not horrible. It's fine. Things are moving. Things are still doing well. Well, since I opened up the can of worms, and you all kind of jumped on just a little bit, what's going on in the guru space? Well, you've been around <laughs> a long time. They're huge on bigger pockets, right? Yeah, man. Like you were like like ranked yeah. up there, uh, somewhere. I don't. I, I never even logged on to the website. Oh. So what's going on in that space? Why are there some gurus out there whining and crying that they lost millions of dollars uh, in residential flipping? Because we haven't seen prices come down mm -hmm. significantly. Um, we haven't seen the market, we've seen the market change and adjust, but we haven't seen it be catastrophically, like, again, I sat through 2008, 2000, I didn't sat through it, I was balls deep in it, same as you. Mm -hmm. So I've seen, like, catastrophic. We're seeing, eh, we're seeing not ideal. At least maybe not if all you're trying to do is, like, shoot for the top. So what's, mm -hmm. what's happened in that space that you've seen? Yeah, it's gotten a lot more competitive because so many people have left. Most of the people that have left are, like, the beginner, people who didn't know what they were doing. Same with like real estate agents and lenders. A lot of lenders have left, a lot didn't of real we, estate Didn't agents. we have more licensed realtors in DFW at some point yeah. than we had listings on the MLS? Yeah, man. And I'm sitting here looking around going like, we're fucking crushing it, but apparently all you other agents aren't. There's a, I don't know if you follow Tom Ferry at all, but he's on the uh, real estate agent side, residential part, and he even can show the numbers that the top 10% have gotten better gotten better over the past year because they know what to do. Mm -hmm. The top people know what to do. And the people who got caught were the ones who didn't see any changes coming, who made no adjustments, who were probably overpaying in the first place and were okay with like, I can make $10,000 on a property and be okay. And if you've been around for a while, you're like, that's really not good. Yeah. 10,000, one wall. I better, be make, making, I better be making 10 grand if the property is 50K. If, yeah, if I got yeah. 200 gram tied up. But there were people with those failure. metrics out yeah. there. It was just nutty that, and, and they were doing fine for a while because the, the market was so great. Remember, you could list your home in December and it would still sell. So, yeah, I think that's definitely what we saw in the, in the run up is a rising tide lifts all boats, right? We're seeing you could fail forward. Everyone's talking about that. I hate that term. I, I hate failing. I don't like messing up because that means I did something wrong. But, you know, if I can overpay by 20K and I can overimprove by an extra 20K and then it sells for an extra 50K above what I thought, or no, then I list it an extra 50K above what I thought, and then I get multiple offers over ask, so now I'm 20K above that, I'm not a genius. Like, I already overpaid mm -hmm. and I already overimproved. I'm an idiot. 
but somehow I just made 30K extra. Oh my God, I'm a brilliant guy. I read and that's what we saw in the marketplace with so many of the newer guys and honestly mm -hmm. a, lot of the, a lot of the big kind of guru space guys too that were yeah. just buying and buying and buying. I see the same YouTube videos, TikTok videos that everybody else sees. One of the things I've, I'll, I'll click on some articles too, like real estate investor makes 130,000 a month. Oh, let me see what's going on. And then in it, I made $20,000 from flipping and $110,000 from students. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, you're not, that's not, you know. Doing this whole fucking thing uh, backwards. Exactly. <laughs> I, I really thought the progression into real estate was wholesaler, flipper, uh, like landlord, right? And then from there, multifamily, right? You just step up the tiers. But apparently it's just wholesale, wholesale a couple deals and then you just turn into a fucking guru, dodo yeah. guru and you teach everybody how to wholesale, yeah. right? You just skip over everything else and then eventually your social media gets so big that then you just jump into multifamily deals just because they fall in your lap and people ask you to syndicate and raise money for them. And then those end up failing too because they don't know anything about cap rates. So My yeah. favorite progression that I've seen so many times, and, and not to, we don't need to, because it's not really a multifamily like discussion with Andrew, but what I've seen so many times is uh, you go to these multifamily syndication things and now they're seeing some frothiness and some like, you know, a little bit of stuff in the marketplace. You've been seeing it so much where, oh, I was, a, I was not a very good house flipper. Mm -hmm. uh, man, I, yeah, hard money like bit my ass and like I lost money on a deal when I first got started. So I just decided to start raising money for multifamily. I'm like, I'm sitting here scratching my head whenever I hear this at these big networking events. I'm like, so you're a crappy house flipper that's like a single asset that's pretty easy to control the pricing and the exit strategy and the liquidity and the construction is not that hard to figure out. So you're going to go do that at a 100x now and you think you're going to be successful? You know, more power to you. But if, the, if all that's going to catch you is prices going up and rates staying down, then you're probably going to turn a not very good house flipper into a not very good apartment investor, into not a very good operator, into just, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, it really is, because failing forward is such a bad mindset to have. There's nothing wrong with having learning experience. There's nothing wrong with figuring out what you're doing and doing something different. But having that as a business model it can be catastrophic. Eventually, is always catastrophic. And TJ, I get to see people's tax returns. <laughs> like they'll yeah. be on. Like I've done some very famous people's stuff, and they'll be on the TV saying something I'm like, "What? I have your returns right here." You know, you don't even know what's truthful. Mm -hmm. Like. You and I, we can discern, right? But if you're a new person just in the market, you don't know what's real and what's not. So yeah, you're telling me I can be a millionaire if I give you 10 grand? Yeah, that, but that piece of it has dried up so much because of how the economy's gone down. Like rates went up for a reason, mm -hmm. to slow the economy down, to and, slow spending. Well, and anyone that knew what was gonna happen saw it coming. Oh like we saw, so we saw. We were literally on a stage screaming into the crowd at, in Grapevine, right? Yeah. Telling people, and then people would turn around and argue with us. No, you don't know what you're talking about. All right, no problem. I, and I do remember that happening. We we said we said the non-QM space because that's very susceptible, especially when it was only like that much off from conventional. Uh, what two years ago, I think. We said the non-QM space, as we know it, is going to go away in the next three to six months. I think we said that January, February, March, something like that. Um, and it changed. A lot of the non-QM guys actually ended up going out of, out of business. Mm -hmm. uh, and it did change a lot. It went a lot higher. It got a lot more restrictive. It's still it doubled, not- Doubled, doubled in rate. Doubled in rate. It's still not full dock, but they got a lot more picky on the borrower side, um, which is a natural progression from having rates be so low. If all you're doing is competing on rate as a lender, non-QM, right? Uh, well, you're gonna lose when rates go up because you can't pick the bottom of where rates are at. 
and they can't sell the big bond of all the loans in the pool you know, instantaneously. There's got to be a marketplace for that. So when that marketplace changes, then the people that are only competing on lowest rate in the non-QM space are going to get hurt, and that's what happened, I think, two years ago. Is that a what you race, saw, too? A race to the bottom. Absolutely. Who can make it there the fastest? And whoever does, goes out. We have competitor, direct competitors with us that are losing $100 million a quarter. Some of them are forced to go public because they're going to fail otherwise. Like, this is how crazy even the regular standard traditional loans are. I, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate where I am as a lender. I'm in the top 1% of the whole country. So I'll get companies that call me, hey, would you like to come meet with us? Like, you guys weren't even lending a year and a half ago. Why are you calling me? You know, but it's, they're desperate for business too. And this is where the, we're really in a crunch time because uh, the economy is slowing. Restaurants, I don't know if you've seen some restaurants going under. Those are the ones that are more prominent to me because especially the cigar friendly, mm -hmm. tap in and grapevine, went out. And that's, they used to be oh, a bummer. marine owned. And I was so bummed. But um, they expanded to a second location, took them out. And then there's other places around town too that just aren't working out. When in the lending side, we really see people saying just about anything they can to try to get business. So, you know, what you're saying is absolutely reflected out there in the market. It is. It's, it's kind of crazy. I appreciate that because obviously we see the inventory we move. We're able to make a educated guess on what direction the market's likely to go in the next, you know, several months. But we don't deal with nearly as many just consumers as you do. Like retail, no offense to normal people, but normal people consumers. We deal with a lot of distress, mm -hmm. a lot of motivation, a lot of, um, you know, emotional distress with sellers. And then... You know, we deal with some retail buyers, but we don't deal with nearly the kind of volume that you would in the retail space. So it's pat myself on the back. Good for us for getting it right. <laughs> That's good, right? You, so you said something a minute ago that I want to touch on if we can, uh, that we can see it coming. Um, and you said it specifically with the education when we were kind of picking on the gurus. Yeah. I, I agree, because some of the stuff going up even the past seven, eight years, and you know they're going to keep failing forward and keep talking about it, so you don't really say a whole lot. But it doesn't pass the sniff test. Um, and I, I have a hard time figuring out why I can tell that sometimes in the marketplace when I'm looking at someone's content or someone's thing or whatever. But being, again, since 2006, seeing the market shift and all this and seeing a lot of people come and go, what is it? Like, what's the sniff test for, for some of these things? It's really, I mean, you and I can say it, mm -hmm. but the, the person who really needs the most protection is the person who doesn't know anything. Right. You know, that's the ones that are really break for because um, they will give somebody 20000 with the belief in this. So when I'm on Bigger Pockets, TJ, yeah. I'm really just, hey, talk to other investors in your market. Please ask them who they are using for title companies. Who's their electrician? Ask other investors who are doing it because you're too new to even know what's real and what's not. And they'll ask about gurus too. Hey, go, go, go to some of these real estate groups around. Ask them if this person is any good. So for us, like you can almost see when they post, right? When they put a video, like that's not quite right. I don't even know if you really have done it, if that's what you're saying. <laughs> if that's really what you just said, you haven't even done this because that's not how it works. Like we can detect that. Mm -hmm. It's just a new person trying to break into it. So what's the path for a new investor, in your opinion? If yeah. you, because there's a lot of opportunity in the space still in any different facet. Um, and we see that, right? And it does have life-changing potential money. And like it or not, you know, money doesn't buy happiness, but it solves a heck of a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. So what's a path for a new investor to take? Is it 
go out on your own and just dive into bigger pockets and YouTube and watch our channel. Don't forget to subscribe uh, and watch the stuff. Is it work for someone else? Is it fail forward in a flattening marketplace? What, like, what do you see? Where do you see people having success? When I got started, man, there was nothing. There was the internet was barely a thing. I'm still a little upset I didn't found bigger pockets. Yeah, yeah there was no bigger pockets. There was no there bigger was no pockets <laughs> when I got started. I remember I went to There's the no library. There's no chip in Joanna. Yeah, I, no, you, I, you I, learned about it listening on AM radio for crying out loud. Yeah. Right? there was like Armando Montalongo <laughs> down in San Antonio. He was around. He was as big a blowhard as he ever is. I still have no idea if he does real estate. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I went to the library and checked out a book, and it was uh -huh. eight years old already. And I had to just go out and do it. That's what and I did. I, and I appreciate it. You know, my first few deals, they were borderline. They really didn't make money, but I learned so much from them. And I did make money on them, but I learned more. So I feel like because the education is so accessible now, you need to spend some time trying to figure out where to start. It's like Uber. If I have a destination, my driver will get me there. And then get connected in the real estate groups that are in your market. Even if you're in a rural area, there's groups that meet online. Mm -hmm. Just connect with people and figure out what they're doing. It's just like interviewing for a job. Go talk to people and see what you feel comfortable with. It might take a couple times, but rely on what others have already done. There's no college here. You have to learn from other people in this space to really get successful. The minute I got really good at it was when I started going to a real estate group here in Dallas. And I was like, oh, you guys are doing what I'm doing, but you're doing it way better. How are you doing that? Mm -hmm. And just start asking questions. Yeah. People yeah. get so like afraid to ask questions and just ask. They can tell you to go to hell. Oh, sorry, no problem. Didn't mean to offend you. Right? But there's no harm in asking. I and only... usually people are so willing to help and provide help and answer. That's right. I mean, I feel like I need to give back. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm in a place now I never thought I'd be. I only do two deals a year, maybe three. I'm a small-time real estate investor. Yeah, I was about to say, as an investor, you only do those, right? That, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, so I want to, all right, so let's touch on that, right? So you do have a very unique uh, investment strategy, right? Because you are a lender first. You're a nine-to-five employee, and then you're, pa I wouldn't want to say passively, but because there's nothing passive about real estate, but you are your secondary job as an investor mm -hmm. in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. So um, touch on that, right? What what we're talking about bigger pockets i know you shared with me that that article and how you and i've shared that with others right because it's such a good example of how to do this um go go down that road right like how'd you how'd you get started not started but what's your model and such how can you do this with a nine to five still yeah so a lot of times people will call me and say hey uh you know i'm dissatisfied with my job i hate my job my family's dysfunctional i want to become wealthy i'm like hey one being wealthy doesn't solve dysfunctional family, man. Like, that might make your family more dysfunctional. Like, if you don't have job satisfaction, that, that might be something totally different than real estate. I really enjoy what I do. Uh, before I was a lender, I worked at a nonprofit charity. I worked for the United Way of New York City. It was so fulfilling. It was so great. And I had rental properties on the side. So you can absolutely have job satisfaction. If that's your personality, there's some people who just need to work for themselves. And I get that, too. But... If you've got a good job that you can't leave or you don't want to leave, yeah, doing this part-time can make you a multimillionaire. I started out house hacking my first home. This was right when I got out of the Marines. My first home was a $50,000 home. People still like, oh, you can't. What state? In Florida. Florida. You can't find $50,000 homes anymore. You got out of the Marines where? 1999. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
there's I can find fifty thousand dollars. Didn't house hacking thing. come up with the or didn't bigger pockets come up with the term yeah, house yeah, yeah. hacking? Yeah. So you were house hacking before was, house before hacking was a house hacking. It was hacking. even a, cool. right when I was doing the Burr method. There was no Burr method invented uh-huh. yet. I was it was the Burr, but it wasn't in, invented. My first couple deals we burred. Yeah. Yeah. My first Burr I bought for seven grand. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> and I, I bought it for seven grand because I knew in my mind I'm going to make a mistake. So if I make a mistake, it at least will be a small one. Seven grand out of your pocket or seven grand purchase price? Purchase price was seven grand. The rehab was 23000 uh-huh. After I got it all fixed up, it was worth thirty. Oh, you know, okay. You're not supposed to do that. What's it worth now? Thirty. If you no, go now. to now. Yeah, Still? Right now. Oh, shit. <laughs> I'll show it to you. You go in that neighborhood, it's like, man, did you feel safe here? No, I absolutely did not feel safe there. But that's all the, that's, that was my life savings. Yeah. And I learned so much. And, and I rented it for six fifty a month. Then I sold it on an owner finance note, who paid me six fifty a month. Like I made money, TJ, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a get rich quick scheme. I still don't think real estate is that way. There's no such thing. Yeah, because there's no deal, right? That you're gonna do one deal and then retire. Well, from. Why the hell do I want to get rich slow? Well, there's I'm not really interested in getting rich slow. What? There's there's <laughs> no one flip. There's no one wholesale. There's no one. You might have a great year and go on vacation for a couple months, but at the end of the day, you're gonna have to come back and go right back to work. Whether or not that's marketing or something, you're gonna to have to go back to a job. So yeah, and your job might be real estate. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be that. I'm, this is why I'm still adamant about like, hey, let's get your mind right, let's get your spirit right, let's get your family, let's get your career right, and then let's use real estate to augment a healthy life. I'm a multimillionaire from real estate. I didn't get here overnight, but I got here because I I turned a fifty thousand dollar home into a seventy thousand, not seventy, turned into a hundred fifty. And then I keep leveraging these assets over time, and now I have millions of dollars of real estate. And I just do two or three a year, and I've got a great job, and a great, well, I mean, where can I complain? I mean, I can find, but man, I never thought I'd be here. Real estate changed my life, and I believed in it from the first day, because I will say, my uncle showed me the way. So when I was 18, I moved 18 times. And then I joined the Marines, God, and moved around more. When I met my wife, we moved three times. She's like, hey, this isn't normal. I'm like, oh, I guess you're right. But when we were kids, my <laughs> if dad. That's all you know. That's all you know. That's right. That's, when we were kids, my dad would take us to the old neighborhoods, like, hey, look at this home's worth 300. We'd be like, oh, that's so cool, dad. My uncle moved around a lot too, but he kept his homes when he moved. He retired with seven. That's it, seven. And he's set for the rest of his life. I was like, I think I want that instead of. And my dad was fine. Nobody, he didn't know anywhere to learn, he just did whatever he could. But the other day, he even called me. He's like, hey, what about that home in Jacksonville Beach? What is it worth? I'm like, you don't want to know, Dad. Yeah, I do. Tell me. It's 1.3, Dad. And it was just silence. You know, and like, I'm sorry, Dad. It's okay. Your son learned, okay? Sure. I'm good. He's you don't worry. Should, he's the one that should be apologizing to you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, want to, I want to have a little thought. How does this phrase strike you then as someone in the conventional, you know, homeowner space? Uh, a primary residence is not an investment. Oh, no, no, no. I always feel like it is. It doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. Like, I almost want you to overpay. If it, hey, this is the perfect school zone for my kids. Great. What's your kid's education worth? Pay whatever you need to get them a good. It gives me my commute time. It's less stress. Awesome. Do whatever you can to have that primary home. Now you're paying yourself. I've got friends of mine who are in their 40s. They just bought their first home. And they're like, hey, man, my house has gone up so much. You finally getting what I've been telling you all these decades, dude. Like, I didn't even need you to invest in rental. Just invest in yourself. It can be. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to treat it like a business because it's for your family. You have personal needs that go into it. 
personal things that maybe I don't even know what they are, but whatever those are, buy a place that fits those personal needs and then make that place a great place to put your money. It can be an investment for somebody. That's how I feel about it. No, I, f I feel the same way. And I get a, I get in the comment section on Facebook and friends, even friends that are in real estate. Where you're living is an investment regardless. It's an investment in your time, your energy. Now, yeah. is it strictly an investment on a balance sheet? Well, it's an investment on someone's balance sheet. I'm either paying someone else's rent so they can pay their mortgage or I'm paying my rent so I can pay my mortgage. Technically, I'm actually paying my wife. What? It's in her name. <laughs> yeah, she's paying all that. She owns everything. I, I own, yeah. I, like, when you say We're own, all own paying nothing, Sarah, trust me. <laughs> I actually own very little. But, but where you live is absolutely, in my opinion, an investment in yeah. time and energy and effort. And Rich Dad, Poor Dad, as much as it's a good book, it kind of threw that on his head saying, you know, primary residence isn't an investment. Grant Cardone took it to town a decade ago, you know, rent where you live, give me your money so I can invest it for you, in a, you know, on a 3% return or whatever he's spitting out. But I look at it the same way. I have a ton of equity in my wife's primary residence that we own. Uh, we have a ton of equity in our previous primary residence. My parents have a ton of equity in their primary residences. They have several that they've owned over the past, you know, over their lifetime. And is there other stuff you can do with that equity? Well, yeah. There's always opportunity costs. There's always, you know, you could have sold that house and you could have done this and you could have done that. Every time I hear that, it's almost always from someone who didn't do that, who didn't buy anything, and then are busy telling you, hey, you could have done such and such mm -hmm. with your money that you have over here because of the stuff that you did do. It's just, it rubs me backwards. When you have financial independence, mm -hmm. you can own your primary home. Yeah. And if you, if you don't have it, you're like, Maybe I have to continue to rent. So, like, there's a comfortability. Like, money doesn't solve all the problems, but it solves a bunch. Mm. And it can do things that um, allow you to live a little bit less stress-free life. You know, maybe not completely stress-free, but less stress. It takes a little while to get there. But I firmly believe, because my first home was a house hack. Mm -hmm. I rented it after I moved out. I rented it for free because my roommates were paying it. I owned it for free, excuse me. So I lived there for free. <coughs> And then I rented it after I left. What? What's wrong with that? That's a great strategy. You bring up a good point because being in being in real estate in the lending side and not being an investor that wants to go just buy all the investment properties out there is you've really you've really I don't know ridden the path that you're talking about. I guess it's fantastic because so many people, especially in the space, think they have to go just do more deals, just do more volume, just wholesale more, just buy more flips, just buy more rentals, just do more, and yeah, I mean, that's you can do that. Sure. But you can also have an incredibly well-paying career that helps feed into that and lets you retire. A house is a forced savings account in a lot of ways. A rental is a forced savings account. And yeah, could you have done something different with the money? Well, you can always do something different. So what? You might also buy some stupid shit that goes down in value and lose money. Mm -hmm. So I think sticking with what you know is a huge asset in, in the real estate industry. What's your average hold time on on one of your properties before you'll turn around and sell it? Five years. Five, five yep, years. Five years. If it, usually in the five-year place, I can net about 100000 whenever I sell it, which allows me to either upgrade to a better class of asset or buy two. So that's what I've been doing through the years. Like, I don't own any $30,000 homes anymore. Mm -hmm. I've sold those and upgraded. Yeah, we got a couple so if you want them. <laughs> I might want to look at those. <laughs> yeah. buy one of ours. <laughs> but yeah, I leverage them about five years is what it takes to get that $100,000 uh, increase. You do a 1031 with that? I do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Um, good strategy. Yeah. That, 
and you know, and every I know somebody there is going to be like, ah, oh, that's why he can do it, right? Because he's going to ten thirty one. No, but you weren't always ten thirty morning or anything like that's true. So, so early on, I didn't even know what that was. Exactly, yeah. it's just about consistency and starting. That first step is always the the biggest pain in the ass. How we've glossed over it, I think we touched base and said it like three times, but we've never actually touched on it. You're a you're a marine, right? You, uh -huh. you how did you go from marines to investing to to being a banker right like and it, did that help you and all that i think the like i probably got more out of the marines nick than they that i gave them mm -hmm. i mean i i look back on it like it instilled so many things in me that are intangible that i have now that i didn't have before like if i went to college out of high school i don't think i would have made it but out of the marines i was on president's club like i was every i was like a total nerd mm -hmm. And I was not that before. So it, it gave me so many things that translate to other places. Real estate is really where my uncle showed me. He was in the Navy in Nam, and he's the one that even got the bug in me. The first time I bought that I house hacked, I didn't even know to use my VA loan. I didn't even do it. I didn't even know what that was. I was so dumb. I mean, I'd started though, you know, mm -hmm. I still made it. I use my VA loan now. But um, yeah, so the military just gave me like the, the discipline and the drive and the motivation. To, to be excel at a place, you know? That's what I wanted after I was out of the Marines. Like, I liked being the top tier in the military. It was, it was very How long were you for? Four years. Okay. Four short and easy years. You did a term and... Yeah, and they, they paid me to go to college. I'm so thankful that my parents didn't go into debt for my college, I didn't go into debt for my college, so, um, and it got me on the straight and narrow, man, on the straight and narrow. I, I talked to guys from my high school and like, Hey, remember this guy doing 30, he's doing 10, you know, like, whoa, this is pretty heavy. What was the, uh, what was the best part of the Marines? <clears throat> oh, you know, you get to go camping and hiking, <laughs> you get to make a lot of chocolate sundaes. Just walks, yeah. yeah. you know. Oh, Were you on the beach in Coronado yeah. or you somewhere else? Oh, I was in, uh, I, yeah, I was, I was in Camp Lejeune, 29 Palms, Camp Pendleton, I was stationed also in Okinawa, Japan. Oh, well, at least Pendleton's nice. South Korea, yeah, I don't it was know very 29 nice. Palms, 29 yeah. Palms is not that great. We, we would say there's a woman behind every tree here. And you're like, ah, oh, there's uh, no trees. Okay. There's 29, there's 29 <laughs> palm trees somewhere. You know, like, oh, thanks so much. Yeah. That 20, is that, uh, yeah, 29 Palms. Uh, it's close it's to. Marine, it's a marine base over by. Um, palm Springs. Palm Springs-ish. Yeah, and Joshua Tree National Park. Yeah. yeah, when you hear Palm Springs, you think it's, you think 29 Palms is nice. Yeah. It's, it's not nice. It's not. It was uh, 45 minutes to the closest Walmart. Like, it was in the middle. It's the largest. Uh, oh, especially in, what, uh, 97? Yeah, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's the only, still nothing the only there. good thing was it was two and a half hours to Vegas or two and a half hours to uh, L.A. So you could literally, like, go snowboarding or surfing or go, mm -hmm. you know, if you could get some time off, you could. Well, Pendleton, at least you had a beach in Pendleton. Yeah, that one was so not that's so not bad. So bad. Yeah, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> you touched on something else, and we're kind of picking on the gurus, aren't we? Um, and I, I'm down to go down that road one more time. So, you got out of the Marines, yeah, and then went to college, mm -hmm. and then what'd you get a degree in in college? Communications. Okay, useless. Yeah. And but a, yeah, <laughs> and my my minor was in English, which is probably more uh, useful than communications. Oh, interesting. Yeah. No, that's and I think the same way. So, what do you think of the the space that's very anti college right now? And I guess college has changed quite a bit since. So, if you got out, you started college. Yeah. So you got out of the Marines when? 1999. Okay, so you actually went to college at the same time as I did. Yeah. So I imagine college has changed quite a bit since I graduated in 04, I think. Um, what do you think about it? So everybody's different, man. Everybody's different. So one of my buddies, he went to college with me, and then he, he went backpacking for nine months. I was like, that's so awesome. 
and he came back in a great place mentally. He just needed to take time off to go figure things out for himself. Um, some of my nieces and nephews, they're in their early 20s, late teens, and my father, you know, their grandpa, oh, I'm so worried about them. They'll figure it out, Dad. They'll just, just give them some time to do it. So everybody's so different. You don't have to spend a ton of money to go to college. Like my wife went to college. She went to a two-year school to get a nursing degree. She makes the same amount of money in, at her hospital than the four-year nursing degrees that spent 80000 she spent like 20, they spent 80, and they get paid the exact same way. There's a decision thing that happens, um, well maybe I should say that should happen more, like what's the value of this? If I'm young, I may not even know, but I went to two years college too. I was so thankful because my, my first classes had 30 people in it. My freshman English, whereas the college and university they went to later, their freshman classes had 600, and the mm -hmm. student, adjunct professor didn't even speak English. It was their second language. So like the, the level of education I got, I felt was better because I was in a smaller place because that's what worked for me. So, so you touched on something though, is I think an advocation versus a vocational training situation in college. Because, okay, your degrees are in communications and what was the other one? English? English. The, okay. The modern anti, or the modern guru space or the modern like anti-college space would say that neither one of those degrees are worth anything. Um, me, I have way too many degrees actually. I have a bachelor's in business, another one in history, I have a minor or associates in math, and I have one in theology. Mm. And I would say out of all four of those, the business degree is the least useful, mm -hmm. uh, the history degree is the most useful, the math is the second least useful, oh. and the theology degree, the minor in theology, is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, and I have my own theories on why that is. But what are your thoughts on the that? Theology. Because a lot of no, it's, it's actually <laughs> very, it's actually very useful. Uh, but <laughs> a couple of theories on why that one's good, eh? <laughs> well, more or less. But so from my perspective, and again, my my, my wife has uh, she actually has five degrees because she, she has a master's degree on top of all that stuff, and all of hers are useless. Uh, it's uh, it's Italian, history, theology, and literature. So similar to you, communications mm -hmm. and, and English or literature or whatever. Um, it seems to be working out okay. But my philosophy with that is a lot of people spend their 20s kind of fucking around, goofing yeah, off. Yeah. Um, I think something like the Marines, I think something like the military, I think something like university, if you take it right, provides a framework so you understand what you're supposed to be doing, when and why. And then the education, it doesn't, the education knowledge base, some of it's important, I think, but what you get is the training on how to do things. And there's a lot of people that just go to college and screw up and they fail out. But they're always going to be probably kind of that mindset, unless they have a mindset shift. For me, what I like to say is, college for me anyway, what I learned is a lot of people go out, they're 20, partying, drinking, all this other stuff, and then they're hung over till Wednesday. Well, we did all that crap too, mm -hmm. but then we showed up on Monday and we passed a calculus midterm. So that's, that's the value that I got from it, more yeah. than the knowledge. Like, I haven't used calculus since I was 23. Um, but that's the value that I got out of it was the mindset about, okay, hey, we had these obligations over here. They're very important. They're, in my case, they're actually private and expensive. Uh, so I better show up and I better get at least relatively good grades. Otherwise, I'm betraying a whole bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm disappointing a lot of people. I'm disappointing myself. I'm disappointing my opportunity. I'm disappointing the expense of being here, whatever. Um, whereas, you know, again, if you're 20 and eh, maybe I go to work today, maybe I don't go to work today because I have a headache, you're not learning the lesson. Now, I'm not saying you can't learn the lesson outside of college or outside of the military. I think you absolutely can. I think you can be very disciplined in your early 20s, and you can be very successful in business. 
But I see so many people that, even on, you know, even on our side in sales, that, oh, college isn't for me, I'm going to try this thing. And they just bounce to different industries trying to make the quick buck. And I think that's so prevalent because you can, you can learn it all on YouTube, but you don't necessarily learn how to do it. Um, but I see so many more people get into trouble by just bouncing around because they don't have the discipline to realize, hey, if I want to be a roof salesman and sell roofs in VFW, I can make a quarter million bucks a year if I work my ass off. Just do that. If I want to do real estate investing and I want to go do acquisitions for a company like ours, you can make very good money. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever it is, but you got to buckle down and do the work. Mm -hmm. And what college and the Marines or the military teaches, in my opinion, is you got to buckle down and do the work. You don't got to be weird and get, you know, two degrees, four degrees, whatever. How many? One? Two. One? Two. Two, that's good. And, and a license. Yeah. Oh. A license. Driver's license? No, 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 no. Coast Guard. <laughs> you don't even have a driver's license? No. Well, that, no, I give that to anybody now. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's that's my thoughts on it. Yeah, you definitely don't need it, but I think I think there's a lot of value to it that really is overlooked because of a lot of the kind of modern culture. I'm a loan officer, right? So as a loan well, technically officer, technically you don't need anything to be a loan you officer. Don't, you don't. But we do know that when we're hiring potential loan officers, if you have a 3.0 college degree, then you'll pass the loan officer test on the first try, because it's a standard test. It's a standardized test. The loan officer licensing. Is this, so if you can do a 3-0 in college, you can pass it on the first I did try. have some fraternity friends who, who were struggling to make the minimum GPA cutoff to stay in the fraternity. I remember that. Yeah. And if you, if you make below a 3-0, <laughs> you're going to really have a hard time with that standard loan officer licensing. So there is some, you're right, it's in, like, you don't go into college thinking you're going to be a loan officer, but it teaches you other things if you can pass. Yeah. It's a test, right? And it's like a lot of tests. If I don't pass this test, I can't go to the next step. Testing step, testing step. It's like life, and just like life, if you don't pass this test, you're going to be doomed to repeat it over and over and over again until you do. And some people just can't get past. They don't even realize it's their test. You know? Uh, I think yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And the reason I say I think the history degree is the most important one was because that's where I learned the most about how to think about cause and effect in history. Mm. I didn't learn that in accounting one. Like assets left, balance, uh, liabilities right, or I don't even know which side they're on. I haven't looked at the balance sheet and probably longer than I should. Um, but the same thing with you. I imagine you get quite a bit out of the communications degree and the, <clears throat> you said English or literature? English. English. Yeah. Okay. What's the difference? Literature is you read, English is you write. Probably a lot of, probably a lot of value to that. Yeah. I felt like there was. I was I'm very <clears throat> happy about how I can draft a sentence and write a letter in a novel or a post on bigger pockets, you know? Mm -hmm. I look at my stuff and I do proofread it. But and that drives business. It, I feel like it does. I can, and then I'll get emails where it's like, there's no punctuation or capitalization. I don't even know what you're saying. Are you an American? I can't even tell with what, but this is just the world we live in now. Well, you can't judge a book by its cover, right? You cannot. But you can make an indication on what might be in the book by its cover. And I'm, I'm never going to judge someone's intelligence by their grammar and their punctuation necessarily, but I'm going to look at something a little more skeptically if they're not able to communicate effectively, in my opinion. Yeah, especially if you're trying to get to work with me or to work for me, I need there to be some level of professionalism because mm -hmm. you're going to communicate with other people who are significantly smarter than me and you. Like, and they want that too. If you want to be successful, you've got to at least portray some level of professionalism in this type of a work environment. Out there, there might be some other choices for you to make, but yeah, we do need a certain level to get people to be successful. We don't want to hire somebody and have them fail, right? That doesn't work out for anybody. Well, because we see we see a lot of people that fail out that don't have a dedication to the thing. Yeah. Now, we have a, a lot of guys on the team that haven't gone to college, but what they have done 
is at a young age, in their early 20s, been dedicated to this industry for an extended period of time and have shown a proficiency in the industry and a desire to learn and take it to the next level. Where we've seen, I think, you'll probably back me up on this too, where we've seen a lot of fallout in both the roofing company and in real estate is people who kind of have the hustle mindset of just like work real hard, make some money, and then, oh, then I can just work some more hard and make some more money. As opposed to, you know what, I want to make this a thing that I can do, that I can build on, that I can learn from. We see such a huge drop rate amongst people who don't want to take it seriously and don't want to have the dedication. It takes the hustle. Don't get me wrong. Everybody thinks that it you gotta takes work. only hustle. But it's not even the work part. It's the commitment part. A lot of times people, people don't commit to one thing. And when they say that, listen, I'm committing to this. I'm going to fail a lot. I'm going to hurt myself a lot. I'm going to lose money, probably. Like, all these things. You, go, you start going to the gym, that shit hurts. Same reason why I don't go to the gym. It's because it hurts, right? <laughs> but you go to the gym long and enough, and guess what? After a while, it starts getting easier, right. and you're still better hurts. in it shape, and all that fun it's stuff, right? It still hurts. <laughs> then you, again, then you continue to grow, and all did, that fun stuff. I did but two days ago. It's the same thing when you start a normal job, right, or a new venture, right? You're gonna, you're gonna suck at it. You're, you're gonna have to fail a couple times. You're gonna, but commit to it and continue to learn and grow from it. One question I always get, uh, I'm changing subjects drastically, right? Uh, but one thing I always get, uh, specifically from like my past life uh, uh, friends, right? So people that I used to work nine to five with, they're uh -huh. always asking me, how can I get into real estate? You're talking right? about how past life regressions. <laughs> anybody still working offshore, I talk to them all the time. They say, hey, all right, listen, I currently, I, how much do I need? How can I buy a, a property, right, and all this thing. Do you have a number, right, like, or like, what do you put down on your side to passively buy one of your properties, right? So I think you have a good insight into that, right? So Yeah, there's, a, there's several client types that I deal with. One of the common client types is that I'm just gonna buy a primary home every couple of years. Okay. So that person only needs 5% down. Now, not everybody's in that scenario, okay? But if you have the ability to buy a home live in it for a year, and then move to another new home, you only need 5% down. And you're gonna get the best rate you can and the lowest closing costs you can, like the lowest payment you can get. I mean, there are several people that yeah. I know who you'd see their gem like, this is what you do for a living? How many properties do you own? Because they just, every couple of years, they buy a new primary home. So the strategy is more important than the amount of money that you mm -hmm. have. Now, if you're not in that position where you can move, all right, now we really got to talk about what our strategy needs to be. This is where it goes back to the Uber. What's your destination? What do you want to do? Okay, you want to do this method. If you want to buy and hold, we need to really focus on off-market acquisitions so that you can acquire properties with very little out of, out of pocket. Or if you want to flip, we still need to follow up with off-market acquisitions so you can flip. So it almost all rotates to me to finding properties that are off-market for somebody. So either I have time to do it on my own, or I have to rely on wholesalers to find it for me. And that's usually where my discussions lead, when I talk to somebody like that. But it's still very doable, right? Like, yeah. For, and somebody's able to do it, and maybe they'll sink, <coughs> excuse me, maybe they'll sink 30 or 40 into it, but they'll eventually recoup that on the long run, right? Yeah, like, and, and Nick, there's this argument too, like, all right, let's say you need 30 grand. Mm -hmm. Oh man, I don't have that. All right, great. Then let's start buying some stocks, dude. You can buy a stock for 50 bucks. It can give you dividends. That's like cash flow. 
Like there's nothing wrong with investing in a different platform. And then when you do get there, I just need you to be in a place that you have a mentally sound judgment of putting money aside for your future, you know, for your future. So every real estate investor I know lives beneath their means. That's the key ingredient. You gotta live beneath your means. Why? Because I wanna take that extra money and put it in my real estate investing. So whether you put it in real estate or into the stock, I wouldn't say crypto yet, but <laughs> stock is a little bit more stable. I hear great things. I mean, I have, I have crypto, no, but I'm in a great place, right? Mm -hmm. So I can afford something that's a little risky. But if you're just starting out, I need you to get into a mentality of saving and living beneath your means so you can invest later in life. The average, the average person of retirement age, Fidelity did this two years ago, the average person of retirement age between 55 and 65 has $90,000 for retirement. Oof. They're not gonna make it, dude. They're not gonna make it. You've gotta do something. If you're, if you're an average person, you have to plan on something else. I don't mean millionaires and billionaires. That's not average. Mm -hmm. The average person. So we have to have a different plan. Yeah, I think it comes to taking um, taking your future into your hands. Like really taking yeah. responsibility for where you are, where you want to go, you know, more or less when you want to get there. Realizing, like you said, there's going to be failures. There's going to be things that are setbacks in the marketplace. Because hypothetically, we could have a real estate prices decrease for residential homeowners, and we could have another 2008 situation, and everyone's upside down. I so, say, you know, if you miss out on 100% of the upside because you're worried about 20% downside, then you're just not playing the game. Warren Buffett even says he can't time the market. No. He doesn't, what does he do? He buys on value. Sound familiar? That's what we do. Mm -hmm. We buy on value. We make our money when we buy. So when there's fluctuations in the market, we're still cool because we bought at the good part, at the good price. Well, you know, say I mess up. Say I buy a house that's 20% and it goes down 30% next year. Uh, and I lose money. Just hang on to it. And <laughs> first, or say I can't for some reason. I have to move. Say I have to go bankrupt. This is America. This isn't catastrophic. How long before I can buy another house if I'm discharged from bankruptcy? Yeah, uh, seven. Well, four years and sometimes two years. Oh shit! It sucks. Yeah. I've never done it. I always I thought mean, it was seven. Seven years yeah. for some loan types, but other loan yeah. types you can do okay. four and two. All right. Yep. So it's even depending it's... on your chapter and mm -hmm. stuff. But yeah, you can do it four and two. So what I what I like to say is if. If markets shift and if things get catastrophic and everyone is screwed, the great thing about everyone being screwed is you're in the same boat as everyone else. So there's a lot of company. And it kind of sucks, but it's also a little bit of solace. So I think it's so much more important to just take action and start now with whatever it is than it is to worry about what might happen in the marketplace. Can I share with you the worst deal I've ever done? Yeah. All right. So the worst deal I've ever done it was 07. My wife and I, we go look at some townhomes and they were like hey we're we're wanting 175 for these I'm like eh, we're not interested really. in Jacksonville Florida and um, Pulte Homes so 2008 they call us hey we had financing fall through on one of our properties I wonder why in 08 yeah, no shit. we'll sell this <laughs> property to you for 135 my wife and I went and looked at it we're like hey this is, seems all right it's 40,000 lower we think it's probably, it might go down a little bit further, but probably not much. That's what we actually said to each other. We actually bought it for 132. It went down for five years straight, all the way down to 75 grand. It was worth $75,000. We just kept it. Mm -hmm. We did move. Were you? We did move. Were you negative cash flow on that? Yes. Were you, so the entire yes. time? The entire, because it was an, again, this is me not knowing what I was doing. In 08, I still didn't know what I was doing. I bought a townhouse and a homeowners association which had the fee that always ate them a cash flow. And their insurance. And, their and then they end up telling you you can't do X, Y, Z with it. Yeah, yep. they kept changing the rules always. 
15 years later, I sold it for 250. So I hang on, I, I just sold it last year, just last year. So my 2008 to 2023 average appreciation is 5%. Even when it went down to 75 grand, it went up. It's real estate, it mm -hmm. will forgive you eventually. When we bought that house, our intention was to always keep it. And the $200 a month, it would have never equated to $100,000 of income. Mm -hmm. yeah. The income that I make mostly on my properties is from the appreciation. I can't time the market, but even in the worst possible place for me to buy a house, I still came out okay. That's why I believe in real estate. Mm -hmm. why I believe in it so much. It's dirt, and they're not making more of it. Mm -mm. And the oh man, what the re this is what that right there is why I love Texas real estate yeah. the most out of yeah. everything. And I keep on asking what states you're in. I know now you're. Are you only buying in only, Texas? Only now. There you go. That, you learned my, your lesson. That was my last Florida property that I just sold last year. I had other ones. Now they're all here. So you got a wife? Kids? I do have a wife. And we have two dogs. Two no dogs? No kids. Okay. Yep. yep. What's, uh, what drives you? Why do you, why do you keep going? Oh, well, um, so <laughs> one of my buddies who's super smart, TJ, this guy aced the LSAT. He teaches the LSAT now. He teaches it on a part-time basis, like 10 hours a week. He's not got any drive in him at all. Because all he does, he just, I'm, I'm fine, I'm contempt. He's married, he's got a wife, he's one of those guys that just bought their home a couple mm -hmm. years ago that I'm finally getting through. Um, I told him the other day, I was like, hey man, I'm finally a millionaire, I've got a million. He's like, wow, so are you gonna quit? I'm like, no, no, I didn't come this far to only come this far, you know? But to him, I, 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 he would be done. Mm -hmm. But I've still got a long way to go. Like right now, if I were to leave, everybody in my family, when I pass, gets a house. That's a pretty good thing. I feel good about that at night. But I'm not done. I still got more to do. Mm -hmm. So I'm still doing two, maybe three a year. I want to keep going, man. How many offers? So to get that, how many offers is that? 100 offers a year. 100 offers a year gets me two or three. Yeah. I want to throw that out there because people don't realize that, right? Like they think, oh, you're just buying two or three, so you're probably only looking at 10. Mm -mm. No, you're looking nonstop. Yep. So you have to be putting in the work. It is certainly a side hustle, mm -hmm. but I am hustling to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, cool. Well, we're bumping up on a little over an hour, which is pretty good for a podcast. Oh, very good. What's uh, what's going to we find you? When is hold on? Oh. <laughs> when, are, when are the rates going to go down? Oh, I have when, no. When should I buy? When I've got I, a thirty-three percent chance of being right. They can go up, down, or stay the same. All right. So I I still say for everybody, if you feel like buying a property, it's got to be an internal discussion, and you got to believe in it yourself. So we always say. Marry the property, date the rate. So the rate, I've never been in a rate for 30 years. I'm always refinancing out. I don't regret any of the properties I own, TJ. I only regret the properties I don't own. So just make a good buy, believe uh, in the property. Rates go down before or after the election? Oh, uh, I mean, they might go down tomorrow. It's They're like gasoline. Well, there's, there's the Federal well, Reserve okay, I'm rate. I'm talking about does the Fed rate, yeah. does the Fed lower second rates half, before or after second the election? Half. So th they'll do it before, but it's too late. Mm -hmm. Like if they, if they lower a rate in June, it has no bearing on the economy. They're going to have to fight it out just on how it is. It's just for a new cycle. Yep. Okay, that's what I want to know. I'm timing, timing my rates, man. Second half of the year, man. That's when they'll start doing it. A little bit? Yeah, quarter of a point in the beginning. Yep. Rates tend to, unless there's something catastrophic, they tend to go down relatively slowly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's exactly what I would say. Wrap us up, Nick. Man, I appreciate you coming out today. How can we get a hold of you? Oh, you can follow me on YouTube, Andrew Postel. I'm on the TikTok. I do Drew 2s 
every so often on Instagram. So I'll actually use those for ideas for my email blasts even. Oh, neat. Like, yeah, no, that's yeah, like, yeah. they're great. Yeah, <laughs> I try to make them two minutes or less so that people can just watch them and get on with their day. So you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Andrew Postel, or Drew Tube. Bigger pockets, how high up are you? Like, where are you ranked on that? Point? I'm number one yeah, right. in like several forums. Okay. So, yeah, I'm one of their top contributors. That's awesome, man. Well, uh, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, fucking smash that like button, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Thanks for following and checking out. You take See us later. out next time. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Put it in reverse, Terry. Put it in reverse. <laughs> <laughs>